Welcome back to another episode of the Shift Drink Podcast. I'm Ed Rudisell, and an in-person interview today. I was just talking about that. That's pretty exciting for me, because it's, it's sad that so much time has passed, and I've gotten so accustomed to doing this shit over Zoom that now if I get to sit at a table with someone, it's exciting to me. But I know you're all in the same boat out there. But today we have Bailey Pryor here from uh, Real McCoy Rums and, and also numerous documentary films and, and such. And welcome to the show, Bailey. Thanks, Ed. Nice to see you again. It is good to see you again, man. I was just, um, you know, we were sitting here, you know, talking. We we're sitting at the Inferno Room chilling out and at what we call the Godfather table. Yes, it's this amazing this is, corner filled it, it, right. with all these incredible signs. I mean, it's really beautiful in here. Yeah, we call it the Godfather booth because it's the one where your back's never to the door and you can look straight <laughs> out. And, um, you know, I was thinking, you know, the last couple of times I've seen you, you've completely, you, you've actually been uh, largely paramount to the erasure of some of these evenings the last few times. And I was thinking about this. So, like, the last time I think I saw you in person... Um, was at Tiki Oasis in Arizona, and that was... Yeah? Uh, I got so lit that uh, listeners of the show would recognize <laughs> it from the, the night that Jeff Barry and I did, uh, we'll call it an interview. I'm not sure that it's, it qualifies as such. Uh, well, because that's what happens at Tiki Oasis, you know? We drank two Arizona. bottles of uh, Barbadian rum. Yes. Uh, and, yeah, it was a rough... And then the other one would have been in uh, Chicago... At Rumfest, when uh, Chris did the did the same, and we ended up losing him, and uh, right, and then yeah, and we he saw you at Lost Lake that got a, yeah, almost yeah. got arrested, and uh, nice. yeah, there's a lot of things we won't even say on the air. I'm glad that you guys have this <laughs> like calm approach to the way you do these <laughs> right. events around the world. Yeah, I mean, when you go, you got to go hard. I mean, you know, <laughs> absolutely. And we're getting too old to do that. Um, but you know, speaking of uh, of speaking of getting too old, <laughs> yes, right. But you're not. This is what's crazy. Like I'm looking at your resume here, man. You know, and. It's just the first time I met you, I remember getting really excited about like all these amazing, cool things and like, but I have a chance to talk to you about them. And now we've got a microphone and we can have all these other people talking and listening. Sure. But the, it's, it's just very wild. And I want to try to stay somewhat structured because there's so much to cover in such a short amount of time. Um, people will recognize you probably largely in the rum world, as, as a lot of listeners of the show uh, are kind of connected to me through that, through Real McCoy. But sure. um, you've done how many documentary films for... Uh, uh, I've you done consider? 138 documentary films for broadcast television, so mostly PBS, um, quite a few for Discovery, ESPN, Travel Channel, Animal Planet, um, ABC and Disney, and then I've done... Seven theatrically released films. Um, most of those were the Warren Miller films. I used to be the president and CEO of Warren Miller. And oh wow! We'd make ski and snowboard movies all over the world. Um, but yeah, that's that's that super was cool. My, that was my film career, and and uh, it was it's a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed that era. But my I started in film on on the movie Mystic Pizza. I grew up in Mystic, I remember that in Mystic right. Connecticut. Yeah, and so I was I basically just ran away with the circus. Here, this movie came to town with all these crazy Hollywood people, and I'm like, wait, this is my crew. I need to be with these people, and I got a job on that movie and and just had a blast and worked through the whole thing. And they invited me, the producer invited me right onto the next movie that he made, which was Home Alone. And I went and worked for on Home Alone with wow. producer Mark Levinson and Scott Rosenfeld, and that's what kind of launched me into the film industry. Later worked at the Samuel Goldwyn Company in Los mm -hmm. Angeles. Mm -hmm. And then uh, ultimately got into documentaries and got recruited by Warren to come run Warren Miller Films. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask about the documentary side of it. Because, you know, um, I met you through the rum world and you you produced, uh, well, not, not just produced, wrote, directed, produced. You do everything. So, like, when we talk about all these films that you've done, you didn't just... 
uh, produced them or directed them. You did all of it across the board and in many cases. And that's a lot of work. Yeah, it <laughs> is know? a lot of work. And it's funny because I was kind of burning out on it. Um, right. You know, when I made the, 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 um, the Real McCoy documentary film, that was when things had been, you know, really come to a head for me. I think I'd done 15 straight years of five to six films a year, which wow. I'm writing, producing, and directing each one. And so that's, you know, every film you do is, the, the writing aspect is so much more difficult than you mm. imagine because if you're writing a novel, you know, you can write as much as you want. You can put as much down on the page. You can go out into segues and, d d you know, down, down different discussions. But in a documentary film, you have to have every single word has to have an absolute meaning to furthering that story. Mm. So it's really hard, technically difficult to write screenplays. And so uh, going through that process, I was really starting to burn out. And that's when I thought, you know what? I've got this great idea. I'll start this little rum company, <laughs> and I'll just do this on the weekends, and it'll be fun. What do you think, honey? You know, and I talked to my wife, Jennifer, and she's like, sure, this sounds like lots of fun. And now it's like completely taken over our lives. <laughs> yeah, in more ways than one. So like as you went in and did, um, I guess we kind of, let's, let's start at like, I guess, uh, the beginning of your alcohol adventure because, you know, you had not considered starting your own rum company prior to making the documentary about Bill McCoy. That's right. And it really got your, its hooks in you. And, and I really see this as a, a fantastic success story in a very competitive market. You know, I mean, obviously the world of alcohol and particularly distillation is quite uh, competitive, but you know, you kind of went at a, at a backwards manner. Um, but I find that fascinating because it's just, it's the American dream, right? Um, but you did this fantastic story about the failure of the American dream, you know, the noble <laughs> experiment. Um, I mean, we yeah. talk about this documentary about Bob McCoy, but it's largely about prohibition in the general. It really is about prohibition in general, yeah. And, you know, we talk about the lead up into prohibition. I mean, when you think about it, how is it possible that in America, the political will was built to such a point that mm. everyone, there, there'd be enough votes to basically make alcohol illegal for 13 straight years. Yeah, I think and that not part only just gets a regulation. Yeah, that's what's for, people don't realize how long it lasted. But it's not, not that it was just a regulation, that it was an amendment to the Constitution. Mm. You know, I mean, it was to the bones of the American society. It wasn't just sort of like, hey, you might get a parking ticket if you get caught with this alcohol. It was, you know, this is, this is serious. We're going to amend the Constitution of the United States. So that was a really fascinating part of the story for me. And then, of course, Bill McCoy coming along, and he was kind of the central character through the whole film because uh, he's the only name you know from Prohibition who wasn't a psychopathic murderer. <laughs> right, yeah. right, There's Al Capone and Babyface Nelson and Machine Gun Kelly and all these I think Al Capone's guys. the first one anyone yeah, thinks and of. it's yeah. like there's guys running around with Tommy guns killing people, and then there's this guy, Bill McCoy, who just refused to rip off his customers. And so by not adulterating the alcohol, they called him the real McCoy, and they called his product the real McCoy, and that's why we all know that phrase today. And that, to me, was an absolutely fascinating American story. You yeah. know? And he became the face of legal defiance because he never broke the law. He never went inside U.S. territorial waters to sell. He, st he just stayed out, you know, three miles offshore. And that was absolutely fascinating to the media. So he became a global icon. People knew his name all over the world because of this ridiculous law in America. And Bill became this sort of face without killing people, without getting in the mob. He was never one of those guys. He wasn't this nefarious character. He was just a guy who, you know, owned a couple of boats, mm -hmm. was into the shipping industry, and needed to make some money because in 1919, um, both of his parents died. His wife divorced him, and his two of his businesses went under all in the same year. And he was just like, 
his whole world turned upside down. And he just said, I got to go do something else. And so he got on his boat and he started rum running. And it's just a really interesting story to see where that led him. So what you're saying is that um, after everything that's happened over the last year, that all of us should just fi- <laughs> find our, our, our find our inner Bill McCoy find and our McCoy. inner rum runner. Yeah. And we'll find a way and out of this. Do your thing. Yeah, As just, you lose things, just figure out a way. And you did. But, it's uh, but the, we'll get to that. <laughs> but it's the real adage in life, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. do what you love and the money will follow. Right. That's, the, you know, in my opinion, that's the best way to live your life. So. I always, I love the story of Bill McCoy. I don't want to give away all the points because I want everybody out there to go check this out. And you can find it out online relatively easily. And, and, and if anybody runs into you, you're always handing out copies of the yeah, documentary. Yeah. But, well, the film is playing on PBS now. It's been playing for nine straight years on PBS. So you can find it in your market nationwide. Or you can just go to our website, realmccoyrum.com, and stream it for free there anytime you want. There you go. Now, is is this film an Emmy-winning, uh, Emmy award-winning film? This film, Real McCoy won five Emmy awards. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember the the promo photos of you like holding all the yeah. all the awards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, that's because the the it was funny because I had never been nominated for anything. I'd been in the business for twenty years, and um, I went and pitched the idea at the network at, at PBS, and I spoke to the president of the network and said, you know, I want to do this movie about. Rum running and Bill McCoy, and, and told him the whole story I just told you, and he said, "Nah, you know, we we we're PBS, we wear ties, <laughs> right. we don't make movies about alcohol." And I said, "Come on, man, this is one of the great American tales that's not been told." So and what you're saying is that you gave Ken Burns a shot at PBS. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ken came along later with his prohibition <laughs> right, movie right, right. after my ratings, on your coattails. Yeah, I guess on that one. <laughs> but but you know, my specialty is to take really complicated pro- uh, subjects and break them down into a very concise movie and it's the kind of a joke that people talk about you know where Ken takes a, a subject and he'll make 13 hours I'll take a 13 hour su- subject and make one hour out right. of it and that's mm-hmm. like my my specialty is to is to distill this stuff down if you will and and that's what we did with this movie and when I pitched it they said they originally said no so I just decided, you know what, I love the story. I'm going to make it on my own anyway. And I just fit it in between other movies. And it took me five years to complete this film. But I had to write it, direct it, edit it. I was a cinematographer. Of course, I was the producer. And, you know, it, I just kind of did it as a labor of love. And when I finished the first cut, I brought it back to the network and I showed it to the president. I gave him a DVD and said, just take this home and watch it. And he, he said, okay, great. You know, and he called me the next day. I don't think he was going to watch it, actually. And he called me the next day and goes, I absolutely love it. We're going to put it on the air right away. And then six months later, I get a letter in the mail from the National Academy of Television, Arts, and Sciences saying, you've been nominated for five Emmy Awards for writing, directing, editing, cinematography, and best (laughs) picture. And I guess to this day, I I believe I'm still the only person that's ever been nominated in in five different disciplines um, on a single film and then won them all. Which wow. was pretty wild. So that was kind of a fun little moment. It was terrifying though, because I had to get up on that stage five times in one night. I didn't even <laughs> write a speech because, you know, I'm right, up against yeah. all these massive documentary people. Uh, you know, I'm the only one you don't know their name in the room, and and it's like forget it. I'm never going to win any of this stuff. And so I'm just drinking wine, having a good time, and and I had to go up there and make a fool of myself. <laughs> well, that's always the part of the award shows, you know, like the documentary part where the the people actually like care about winning that award. I mean, not like they're not trying to win it, but when they actually get it, it there's a real emotional moment yeah. versus, yeah, you know, yeah. the directors of best pick. They they know they're getting, you know, they're sure. nominated for, you know, the SAG awards and Oscars and all that. Uh, but you know, so prohibition is kind of where you your entree into this storyline comes, which is funny. You know, like your entry to alcohol was through the absence thereof yes. of alcohol. And, yes. you know, I was listening to an interview you did with uh, Souther, our uh, guest from last week, actually. Souther T. Um, you were on the speakeasy about a year ago, and you kind of talked about this um, 
quite at length, um, and I recommend any of our listeners that are interested to kind of go deeper into the prohibition edge of this story to please check that out, um, and I'll link to it in the show notes. But, you know, back in those times, I mean, alcohol was very, very cheap in America where, yeah, you know, that's right. it was a time where there were multiple um, multiple groups that were wanted alcohol to be illegal. That's um, exactly right. For different reasons. Right. There were, there were many different groups, but there were pre- sort of three primary groups, and I kind of conglomerated these groups together to, for the, for cin- you know cinematic purposes to tell the story but essentially you had the women's christian temperance union which was you know one major organization but there were many other sort of sub organizations to it and mm-hmm. unaffiliated but with the same agenda um, and and they were trying to stop domestic violence they were trying to stop men from drinking the rent money and things like that so there were very legitimate reasons why um, you know, the ladies wanted to, to stop the alcohol. Uh, of course, there was the, the Christian aspect of it as well, which is totally respectable. And then there was the Anti-Saloon League, which is probably the most sophisticated um, organization in the early days of politics in America mm-hmm. with our, you know, really the first political action committee. And, and so these were the domestic, you know, white Protestant stock, rich white men, and they owned basically everything in America. And so that group wanted to control all the, all this immigration that was occurring. We had lots of people coming over to the United States from Europe, war-torn Europe, 1915 yeah. through 1919. You had tons of people coming. I mean, you had, you know, entire cities were being destroyed. And, of course, people were getting out of there. And they would come to the United States, and this was the land of hope. And so they got here. And, and with them, you know, with, with that, there's always some percentage of any crowd that is going to be a little unruly and they immediately latched on to that part of it and you know they brought a drinking culture the germans drink their beer and the irish drink their whiskey and the italians drink their wine and so they kind of like focused their anti-immigration agenda on the alcohol right and used the alcohol as the hinge pin in in the way of you know like it's sort of like build the wall today you know and is a similar <laughs> similar concept of there might be you know things that are going well or not going well with the immigration process in America, mm-hmm. but the but there was a, a central theme, a central idea. You have to hinge it all on, and that right. in this case today, it's it's build a wall, and back then it was it was no alcohol. I mean, it's constant. You know, we see today we uh, you know we often refer to in the cannabis industry, you know, cannabis prohibition. It's actually mm-hmm. we you know refer to it as cannabis prohibition, mm-hmm. and which was brought about in the 30s after the repeal of alcohol prohibition. But it was all a racial aspect. It was an attempt to arrest you know, well-to-do Mexicans in Los Angeles and San Diego. And, you know, again, you know, using that as like the lever of saying, oh, you know, we made this illegal or crack in the 80s. You know, we see this is constantly this drug being, you know, attached to ethnic groups in order to demonize them and be able to like, you know, sure. white rich men, like you said. Well, yeah. And then, and then of course, you know, th- this, I, I wouldn't say, I mean, personally, I wouldn't say that like the, the anti-saloon league was being like racist in that regard. I do mm-hmm. think that they were being very classist. Um, and, and I, but the third group is the, it was the racist group and that was the Ku Klux Klan. And back in, in 1918, the, there is an estimate that there are over 5 million card carrying members of the KKK in the United States in 1918. And I found these really amazing and scary photographs in the National Archives and Records Administration in, in, um, Bethesda, Maryland. And there are pictures of, um, I would say tens of thousands of people dressed up in the Klan white oh, wow. outfits holding signs. And and you can see, like, this is the group from Rhode Island. And there's, like, 40 people dressed in the mm. conehead hat things. And, and here's the group from California. And here's the group from Illinois. And they, and they would kind of walk. And they were parading down Pennsylvania Avenue 
right in front of the Capitol building and right in front of the White House. And it's the images in my mind that I'm watching as I'm as we're watching the Capitol being attacked right, yeah. in the last month and, and then seeing these images from 100 years ago. And realizing, wow, there's really just not a Nothing's lot has changed, changed yeah. in this country. It's I know, and that's, and, and that's what I was, you know, thinking about with the when I mentioned the cannabis prohibition. It's like we think we've come so far, but you know, we're still facing prohibition of, of marijuana. And I've I've mentioned that on the show numerous times. I mean, obviously, I'm a big advocate for for legalization. We've sure. seen the tides changing, but not on a federal level. But we've never at any point seen an amendment to the Constitution. Right. You know, um, right. you know, we've seen scheduling and all that, and particularly considering how important rum has been to the history of the United States. Um, oh, absolutely. It was you know, the number one beverage alcohol in America was rum, you know, before the revolution. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't say in America. I should say in the colonies. Right, um, right. So yeah. it was back then when it was under British rule, you know, rum was the drink of America. And it, it, the bourbon didn't come in until much later, mm-hmm. really because you had a lot of people moving into the, you know, the, the, the Ohio River Valley. You had people coming into Kentucky and Tennessee. And they were... Uh, farming, but they couldn't get their crops out to major markets fast enough to earn a good living. So a lot of times corn would rot and things would go wrong. By the time you put it on a boat and sent it down the Mississippi mm-hmm. River, your wheat was toast by the time it got down there. So they decided, you know, why don't we distill this stuff? And that's really how a, a big portion of how the bourbon industry really came into play. And in the early years of, of, of American bourbon, um, especially right up leading up to Prohibition in about the 20 to 30 years before Prohibition, there was such a glut of alcohol getting bigger and bigger and bigger, so much alcohol that um, I, I had an economist from Columbia University do a little study on what did alcohol, domestic alcohol cost, something that was made in the United States, whether it was rum or bourbon. And they were averaging uh, that it was $2 a gallon in today's wow. dollars to buy bourbon. In today's dollars. In today's dollars. Uh, that's how much there was on the market. So... You know, that's also part of the reason why um, there was so much drinking in the streets. And there's this is why mm-hmm. the Anti-Saloon League and the Women's Christian Temperance Union, not necessarily being racist, I don't think that was really their goal. I think they were, like I said, the ladies were trying to end domestic violence and get the men to pay to go to work and, you know, pay right. the rent and stuff Certainly like that. Certainly an era where women were expected to stay at home and, you know, raise the children and, yeah, and not yeah. have a job. And and their husbands wanted to have, you know, uh, uh, you know, law and order in the streets and not drunk people falling down and, you know, vomiting on the sidewalks and stuff like that. And so those two groups had, had their own legitimate reasons, which I think were totally legit in the day. And then the KKK came in with their, you know, their, their sort of agenda of anti-immigration on racist mm. uh, uh, foundations. And so all those things, those three elements came together to create kind of a perfect storm of anti-alcohol. And even though most of those people drank, they just didn't right, want it to right. be this unruly thing. You know, mm-hmm. so you even see President Warren Harding having mint julep parties on the South Lawn of the White House. During prohibition, <laughs> in, in in view of the press taking pictures of it, you know, it was just amazing. Well, you can get you can get um, uh, prescriptions for alcohol during this time, right? Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I always love that. And, yeah. and, and you know, there's um, there are a few just distilleries like that, right? Today. Exactly. You know, they they claim that you know the longest operating distilleries in the United States, those sorts of things, where they had the permits to be able to give medicinal whiskey during prohibition, yeah. or you know, Angostura things and, like that. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. <clears throat> and yeah. so. You know, we talked about like the importance of rum in America. I, you know, I remember. Um, I think Wayne Curtis said in his book, you know, in a bottle of rum that, like, what just what twelve years before the American Revolution, there were like over two hundred rum distilleries in Boston alone. Yeah, and, in, in and, New England, there was a tremendous amount of rum being produced um, because there was a, a great deal of trade with the, with 
um, Barbados actually. The the from what I've learned doing research down in Barbados, um, it seems that the Barbadians were trading with the colonies and the Jamaicans were trading with the UK. Ah. So if you were getting molasses and tr- sugar or treacle, they called it back right, then, right. which was a blend of molasses and crystalline sugar. Um, now it's just a, a, a tasting note that you can throw out there if you want to sound fancy. <laughs> <laughs> Marzipan, did you get the treacle? <laughs> it sounds like something that happens it, afterwards. Yeah, right, having a bad it does. Night. It really does. I, was, I got really hit with the treacles. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, the, uh, so, you know, if you were buying molasses and things like that in, in, in London, it was coming from Jamaica. But if you were buying it in New York or Boston, it was coming from Barbados. And so that was kind of the link. I'm sure there was exceptions to that rule, but that seems to be what the case was. And so you had a lot of Barbadian molasses. You had Barbadian rum coming up. Um, but then you had people making it domestically in the United States. And, of course, they were taking that molasses that they were getting from Barbados. They would distill that. Um, and in Boston, like, like Wayne was saying, you know, there, are, there's, there was definitely a ton of distilleries there and, and all, up, all throughout New England. And so you had a tremendous amount of rum being produced in the Northeast. Sure. And I mean, if you Which look at the timing, we don't have an identity for that yet, other than Maggie doing right. um, uh, um, privateer. Yeah, we see that. You know, obviously, um, timing-wise, just before the American Revolution, it's not a stretch to think that our, you know, founding fathers, the colonies, were kind of making plans in a tavern, you know, with rum. Oh and yeah. And we think of this kind of bourbon yeah. being this uniquely American product, but you know, like that you said, came I, later. I, that was the French helping America right. during the Revolution. I mean, it's it's named for Bourbon, a French account. And, and so the whole reason why is because the French government, you know, and the French aristocracy was investing in the United States to beat Britain just because, you know, there was all mm-hmm. this battling between England and France for so, such a long period of time. But the, that was really the, the assistance from the French after the Revolutionary War that really kicked off the bourbon industry. And I'm not nowhere near an expert on the bourbon sure. industry, but I've, I've read a little bit about it um, to, to give you that information. And I always just thought that whole French in- influence was so fascinating. Also down in, in Martinique and Guadeloupe, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and even parts of, of South America, where, um, you know, the, the reason why Rum Agricole, spelled R-H-U-M, mm-hmm. you know, Rum Agricole is, is from Martinique, for example, is made from fresh pressed sugarcane juice. And same thing with with you know uh, other parts of of the French the French protectorate islands or yep. any other territories. Mm-hmm. And the reason why was because Napoleon forbade the farmers, the French farmers, from making sugar, because the only people doing global trade in sugar were the British. So if the French farmers in Martinique were then selling that sugar to the Brits, the Brits would make profit off of it and use that profit to fight Napoleon. Mm. <laughs> so he said nobody can make sugar, and that's why rum agricole comes from fresh pressed juice. Well, you know, like I said, with the um, kind of the importance of of rum into American history, and, I, and again, that does get forgotten. We kind of we fast forward because we get for, we forget about this, and pro- prohibition comes around because those bourbon guys because have of those put so damn, much marketing money behind those it, damn America. whiskey guys. But you know, <laughs> this leads me into what I wanted to talk to you about today, and we've got some real interesting things to announce. I think on the show, this yes. may be the first time we talk about this with microphones, but uh, so. There is a very much kind of this American style of rum. There is a unique uh, New England style of rum. Yes. And uh, you are actually in the midst of completing, not even building, completing a distillery. Uh, yeah, we're gonna going fire to fire up the still next week. Under your operation. Yes, so, uh, yes. So up to this point, I guess we ought to back up a little bit. So your relationship while you're making this documentary uh, about rum um, and Bill McCoy, this kind of... Um, 
sparked a relationship between you and the island of Barbados, and, and yes. in particular, Richard Seal, uh, who's been on the show before. Uh, mm-hmm. So again, you might want to go back, but it's a, it's a definitely a rum nerd episode. So if you're if you're just getting into booze, maybe not get into that. <laughs> Richard gets real geeky real fast. Um, but you know this this relationship where you didn't expect it. You know you're that's why where we kicked this off. I said you know kind of getting we're getting old and you know don't know where the things are going. I mean you know you're now in your fifties and you're taking a hard left. Yeah, you know, yeah. and so oh, but it's so much fun. I mean you know when when I went from filmmaking and then deciding to get into rum making was. You know, when I saw the pictures from McCoy, you know, that he and his crew had taken on the deck of their ship, um, you know, they were, they, they were getting rum from Barbados. And, and so we knew that that was occurring. So I went down and met with the head of the National Archive down there, showed her some photographs, and I said, which distillery would this have been? And, and she said, oh, it's got to be the Foursquare distillery. I think it would be the, the Seal family would mm-hmm. be the ones that would be big, big enough back in 1920. Richard says he has no idea. There's no record. You know, they don't have any evidence of anything like that. And if anybody would know, Richard would. I mean, Richard he's definitely would know. He's in, very it, into the history of it. Yeah. yeah. And and I thought actually it might have been Mount Gay because Mount Gay is so entrenched with the sailing community on the East Coast. Mm, Anybody's into yeah. boats knows like Mount Gay sponsors every sailing event. Yeah. They're all over boating. Even I know that, and I don't boat. Yeah. Well, for obvious reasons. So because uh, I'm I, in the restaurant industry. <laughs> <laughs> But I called up the uh, the owner of, of Mount Gay at the time to ask him. Frank Ward was his, was his mm. name. His family owned it for several generations, and mm-hmm. they, they recently sold it. But um, I asked Frank, you know, would, would this have been you? And he said, no, we weren't exporting until 1957. Um, so he said, I think it might be Richard Seal. You should go talk to him. So I, that's what got me to Richard. And it was just fascinating talking to Richard because he's such a mad scientist. He's a brilliant yeah. guy um, and, you know, arguably one of the great rum makers in history. And to have an opportunity to learn from Richard and to really begin to understand the techniques, the traditions, and the history, to me, are fascinating. And I do all of my own research and all my own writing for my films. So this immediately became like a research project. And suddenly I'm learning everything I can about fermentation, distillation, maturation, blending, raw material handling. And, and it just became fascinating. So I would just pepper Richard with questions every single time we got together. And eventually he just started saying, well, you know, here, I'll walk you around the place. And we started going through and, and, and I, you know, had this sort of rough, uh, loose apprenticeship with Richard for 10 years now. And yeah. it's just been amazing to learn so much from him. And then other people, you know, I've spent time in Martinique learning about rum. I've spent time in Scotland learning about American single malt whiskey. I did that. Sorry about Scottish whiskey. I'm, I'm saying American so much. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Scotch whiskey with Colin Poppy up at uh, Ballandolic Distillery. You know, for me, the reason for going to Scotland was because the techniques, the technology that you found in the Caribbean even 300 years ago was in the Anglophile Caribbean was coming from Great Britain. That was, you know, there's no copper mines down in Jamaica or Barbados. Right. There's no oak trees down there mm-hmm. to make barrels. This was all technologies, techniques, t- traditions from Scotland and and, and uh, other parts of the UK. And so um, those people were going down to the Caribbean. They were settling down there. They were getting into distillation. And then all this trading started happening with the American colonies. And so you get into the 1700s, late 1600s, early 1700s. And now there's a lot of molasses, a lot of rum going up. Now there's people going up to, the, to, to New England. And they're distilling up there. And mm. so there's this amazing connection. So I thought this is, is the perfect time to start a New England rum distillery. Um, and I'm also going to be making American single malt whiskey. Oh, wow. And both are going to be coming from the traditions of the original traditions of the UK and the traditions of Barbados. Well, let me be the first to say congratulations. I, Thank I, I'm you. super happy to hear that. And I know that this isn't, 
it hasn't been public up to this point. No, I mean, it's it, not this been the first hidden. Time I've but talked about it in the media. Yeah, hey, it's so. an exclusive. I'm breaking breaking journalism <laughs> breaking here on Shift Drink. That's right. We get to break a story. But um, but Real McCoy is not a new rum brand. You know, you you launched this kind of out of the love that you developed for rum over do, making this documentary about Bo McCoy. Yes. Uh, and so, but that let's. I guess we should clarify what your partnership and and how you work with Richard at the moment and how that may or may not change with your own distillery. So uh, sure. right now you are working directly with Richard Steele and Foursquare. Yes, so Richard makes all of, the, all of the real McCoy rums, and he'll always make the real McCoy rums. We're not going to alter that process. So the real McCoy will always be made in Barbados. It's always going to be made by Richard Steele. This is going to be our plan. And so what I'm doing in Connecticut is a completely different project, and we're still working on name, brand names and things like that. We're technically, right now, we just call it The Lab, Mm-hmm. And it's uh, and it's an experimentation site, and it's, so it's allowing me to take everything that I've learned, you know, um, from other people, and bring it into practice in my own style and with our New England story. So getting, um, you know, using yeast from our our area, we're doing open top fermentation. The yeah, way that's it super been done. cool. You showed me those photos back like, in the day. Yeah. yeah, we had these custom made wooden washbacks. We had our still custom made by the Forsyth Company in Scotland. Yeah, and super cool. In the Caribbean tradition, it's a double mm-hmm. retort still. So just beautiful stuff. Got it all set up it's now. Like a worthy park still, man. It's just like yeah, yeah. so beautiful. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, We'll try, we'll try to snag some of the photos from you here and put them on our Instagram sure. feed when this when this episode goes up. But I mean, sure, sure. It just it's completely like a dream to, to see what you're doing. And, and for you, it really is. I mean, you know, this has been a decade. It's a decade of, of, uh, of study, and now I'm ready to do, go into practice on my own. And the other fun thing is I've designed the place to be something that I can share with people as an educational experience. So I want people from the industry to come to my distillery where you can't usually do this. Like, you can go visit Richard in Barbados, but you can't touch any of the equipment. Mm. No, no, um, no, no, no. No one to, do that. You can go say hi to, to Joy in, 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 at a... Uh, Appleton in Jamaica, but you can't go there and physically make the rum with them. Sure. And this scenario, the batches are so small that you absolutely can come actually be involved in making the rum. Like you can come and learn how this is done and then do your own specific blend. And we can age it in whatever barrels you want. And this is your batch. And the only place in the world that's going to be able to get their hands on this is is you or your account. Sure. And so I love that idea because it really brings people so much closer Mm -hmm. to the actual process and the traditions in the old style. So that you can get rid of all the mystery around it. There's so much kind of marketing BS that's out there around distilled spirits, especially. Like lots of people have experimented with making beer at home. But you know, when you think about it, you, you go make your own beer. You might you might have made some wine yourself and and aged it or done whatever you're going to do with it. But you recognize that that process is is technical. It's not rocket science, but it's technical, and you got to know what you're doing. And with a little practice, you can make some really nice stuff. Then you go to the distillation step, which is um, quite difficult if you don't know anything at all about distillation. But mm-hmm. once you get there, it's quite easy once you've had that indoctrination. And then you get into the blending and the aging and so on. And so this is an opportunity for people to come and learn in the way that I got to do it. So I can take my 10 years of experience and all these great mentors that I've had wonderful conversations with people at Rum Clement, Rum Nissan, and Foursquare, and at Appleton with Joy, and you know so many great people out there, Colin Poppy at Volandalic in Scotland, and apply all of that information in the way that I do with my films. I can, I've broken that down into really easy bite-sized chunks. Come learn how to do it and make your own product, and it's so, going to be amazing. 
<clears throat> on an episode we did um, several months ago, we talked about the uh, – we briefly mentioned Bardstown uh, Bourbon Company, and I know they kind mm-hmm. of built their distillery in the same way of having guests come in. Now, do you anticipate having, like, guest distillers come in and being able to do, like, these limited projects? I do, yeah. I want to do things – I want to do blends with different people, so I'd love Trudy Ann from Mount Gay to come do stuff with me and, and, and Joy and, yeah. you know, I mean, everyone, the folks at Hampton and, and Richard, I'd love to do special projects like that. And that's really what we're going to talk about doing at the lab and not not like making some of the real McCoy there. This mm-hmm. is more like total experimentation, right. lots of fun ideas and playing around with different techniques, especially in New England with our natural yeast, open top fermentation. You're not going to get that in the Caribbean. Right. It's going to be a different, entirely ad- different ad- adventure. And so. we talk about this all the time in the rum world, you know, um, with the angel share in the Caribbean and like with exact uh, ingredients that you have down, say, like Cuba or, or Haiti or Jamaica, that you just couldn't make with the exact same everything except for temperature going into Kentucky. You just couldn't do it because the, exactly the, the temperatures right. are entirely different. You can't make bourbon in the Caribbean. And you can't make, you know, Jamaican rum in Kentucky. You know, um, they're just entirely different uh, scenarios. And you, we lose quite a lot. I say we like I own anything. <laughs> like, <laughs> But, you know, during, um, you know, maturation of rum in the Caribbean, you, you lose Oh, we lose ton. between 6 and 8% in Barbados or yeah. basically anywhere along the equator. You go up to Kentucky, you lose 3 or 4%. You right. go to Scotland, you lose 1 or 2%. So... You know, in 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 twelve years, like for our twelve year rum, we we lose between sixty and seventy percent of the contents. Yeah, of I mean, the you've got one of the oldest rums available. I mean, yes. Richard's obviously he's got some blends of some things, and then Appleton's got their you know fifty year. If you ever see a bottle, you know, please send me one. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> and it's three grand or something. Yeah, like right. That. No, which it's it way should, more than which that. It should be. It came out at seven. Oh, and I believe yeah. that it's now, yeah. I mean, there was only 900 bottles. But I just love that that's completely legit, you know, because there, unfortunately, there are some people in the rum industry that are coming out with these rums that we they're see like, oh, they're lot. 40 years old. And it's like, really? I don't even, never even heard your name before. Where did this 40 year old rum well, come from? Well, and we from, see you know? these large numbers, you know, printed on bottles all the time that yeah. don't have, like, there's a very, I think that's what people don't realize when they see it. And, there, and no one is to be blamed for being confused by the marketing. Uh, because the marketing teams depend on your confusion. Yes, you know for, that, for the pricing that, of that bottle. <clears throat> yes, there's like one. What, I think there's what three ways that you can exactly phrase it on a bottle. There's that, only that, two. Two ways. There's I'm only sorry. two ways. Okay. You can either write like for a 12 year old rum. You can say aged 12 years, or you can say 12 years old. Okay, that's it. If you say 12 year, that's not an age statement. And that's called uh, fanciful fanciful language. language. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. So the TTB, the the Tax and Trade Bureau in the United States, that's in charge of label regulations. They'll look at that and say, oh, that's fanciful language. That's marketing terms. Like you could say, oh, I'm going to name this rum after a unicorn. And they'll say, great. You know, unicorns have nothing to do with rum. We don't care. That's fanciful mm-hmm. language. But if you write unicorn 12 year, they're going to go, yeah, whatever. That's marketing term. And we'll yeah. all go, wait a minute. That's, that people, The consumer is going to think that's 12 years old. Right. And we're like, sorry, it's a marketing term. Mm-hmm. Nothing we can do to regulate that. That's not our job. So people come out with, you know, Solera 95, right, right. and they, anything Solera means who knows what that is sure. in that bottle. Well, I mean, I think most have, like, people are, like, familiar with, like, seeing Zacapa on the shelf, and there's has a big 23 on it, yeah. and or it says Años, you know, which, again, you know, that's not part of the yeah, that's TTP not language. Yeah, statement. And yep. I'm, you know, Those I'm, are I'm not terms. particularly picking on Zacapa, but we were talking earlier, like, that's a brand that if you're going to see a rum in a bar that's, like, you know, got something beyond... The well, you know, uh, Bacardi or whatever, that's probably going to be it. And you see yeah. that big 23 out there. And like I said, you're, you're, 
are to be forgiven. You know, I was when I first got into rum. Like you see that twenty three, you're like, wow, yeah, the this consumer because you're trained to think that that number is is sacrosanct. Like if it's right. if it's if there's a number on the label, then it must be that age, and that's mm-hmm. actually not the case with rum. You you don't find people in the whiskey space doing this because the self regulation and and honestly, kind of the self respect in the whiskey industry. Mm-hmm. You know, including the bourbon folks, they don't lie about their age statements. They don't fake people out in any way. In 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 um in tequila, you you see kind of a little bit of that going a little little it's gotten fuzzier over the last few years it's getting kind of fuzzy but the uh the rum rum community there's a a large number of people that that are just using fanciful language and hoping that you're now willing to pay you know 50 60 dollars for something that would without that number on it would be 1999 right well i think that's a good way to um you know start questioning things as well as we were all walking around with a computer in our pocket these days and if you see a uh, what you what appears to be a 23 year old rum for 25 bucks you oh, know absolutely. you should start asking questions you know because if joy's got a you know a 25 year old bottle from appleton is costing me 400 dollars. why yeah. does the next one cost 20 why is it yeah why is it 22 dollars? well and here's here's the real reason why that is now if you're going to actually do what joy's doing right you're actually going to make a legitimate 21 year old rum let's say or, or let's call it a 24 year old rum so so like for us if we laid down 100 barrels and we let it sit for 12 years we'd lose about 70% of the contents of those barrels. So you'd have 100 barrels mm-hmm. at 30% each. So if you top all those barrels up with, with the remainder of all the other barrels, right. you'd have 30 full barrels, right? And now you let that sit for another 12 years because you want to get to 24 years old. Now, because this is physics and not marketing, they'd all go down mm-hmm. to 30% again. So you now have about nine full barrels. You started with 100 barrels mm. of rum that was expensive to make. And now you only have nine and somehow there's unlimited supplies of this. Right. And somehow it's it's twenty five bucks. Like mm-hmm. you've got to be kidding me. That should be five, six hundred dollars a bottle or more now that now that that's increasing. So, you know, for consumers who really want to understand how to decode rum, the first thing is look at the rum. If they don't talk about their master distiller or their master blender, that's a big red flag. If they're talking about palm trees and sand and beaches and <laughs> right. things like that, then they're there. That's a little bit of a card game here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if their age statements are big, but their price tag is low, yeah. you know, meaning, meaning it should be triple digits yeah. if it's over 12 years, yep. pull your phone out, Google it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You'll know real quick. There's a lot of resources out there now and, and you've been a big one. And so that your connections with Richard, um, you know, that's where we kicked off the real McCoy, but you're, um, very well connected and respected within like kind of this core group of, of, of folks that are now kind of referring to themselves as uh, the guardians of rum. And it's an official kind of designation the, the within family, the self, yes. self, yeah. right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, referential kind of guardians of rum, but you know, being able to have, uh, I guess, FaceTime with joy Spence from Appleton or mm-hmm. Trudian from Mount Gay and, and this across the board, being able to like talk with, with people from Hamden Estate or, or Worthy Park or sure. going into Martinique. And you really got uh, this unique opportunity for your new distillery because you've been able to apprentice with all these people that really previous uh, previously had been impossible unless you just happened to be a dude with a boat that liked to visit the <laughs> islands. Um, I, I guess I guess Ed Hamilton falls into that category, Ed, right? Ed, Ed yeah, yeah, right. He sure. just floated around the Caribbean. For 20 but, years, yeah. But you were making movies while he was like smoking <laughs> weed and sailing. Um, but you know, the good thing, that, that's, that's one of the great things about rum is that 
you know, rum is such a fun spirit, right? It, there's so much joy in it. We all have so much, such a great time. We go to tiki bars, we go to cocktail bars on beaches and things like that. Rum is a lot of fun. And the f- really great thing about it is that the traditional rum community is also a tremendous amount of fun. They're such beautiful people. I mean, Ben Jones at, at Spiribam, you know, Rum Clement and, and uh, Rum JM. And yep. Um, I mean, his Bounty Rums and, and the St. Lucia Rums, you know, what a great guy he is. And and I've gotten to know him over the years. You know, Richard, Joy, Ian Burrell in, in England. You know, I mean, it, the list goes on and on. Zan at Worthy Park and Maggie up at Privateer. It's just such a fun group of people that all hang out together at the rum festivals. We're mm-hmm. all friends. And the, and the nickname for the group is the Rum Family, or Rum Fam. Oh, yeah. We have Rum if you, Fam if you look at the hashtag, I mean, we've hashtagged yeah. a lot of our poses, Rum Fam. Yeah. I show up occasionally, but, you know, I don't... But I, how cool is that? It they're, is. They're, they're not a bunch of bickering corporate assholes Mm-mm. sitting around going, how am I going to beat out Ben Jones? Me, me, me. You know, like, <laughs> right. We're just buddies. We'll just hang out together and have a great time. And people love all of these different spirits that we make, and we enjoy this stuff together, and I think it's a beautiful community. And so... For people exploring rum, you know, the opportunity to go in and say, like, I want to try a really incredibly well-made, balanced Barbadian rum. And Barbadian rums are known for their balance. And so, you know, I'll try a real McCoy. But I really want to check out this rum agricole stuff. What's that like? Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's like the, the mezcal to tequila. You know, think of it that way. You get these incredible herbal components, these vegetal components in that because it's made from fresh pressed juice and not from molasses. You get all that lovely vegetal com- component to it. It's absolutely beautiful and, and incredibly fun to explore. And I got the, the great joy of spending five weeks on the island of Martinique one year and studying rum with with some of these folks. And it was just fabulous to try all the different rum agricoles. Um, then you can ch- check out the cachaças, you know, like mm-hmm. Avua, you know, our, our friend Pete at, at Avua Cachaça. Uh, there's so many cool things to play around with. Or go over to Jamaica and try the Hampton Estate, the funkiest rums in the world, you know, the rum fire and things like that with Nick. I think that it's just such a fun exercise for people listening to this show. If you haven't really run the whole gamut of rum, just those that I mentioned are an absolute joy. It's so much fun. And, of course, there's so many more to, that we could talk about, but but you get a good sense of the, the vast variety. Sure. And, and rum is... Well, stylistically, I mean, those are like just night and day from any two that you just named there. And so that's where your kind of uh, your your construction and business plan you know with new england so i mean i guess we ought to cover what what is stylistically a barbadian rum now right because that's where the real mccoy is produced yes and that's where it's going to stay produced with yes. at um at, at foursquare yes. so when someone's coming into this and they they taste real mccoy what are they tasting so what are the like the kind of the markers we're looking for to say this is okay this is a barbadian rum because it's gotten a lot of attention lately and it's gotten a lot of attention lately because of richard and because yes. he is producing world class rums at affordable and when i say affordable not 20 bucks <laughs> you know no but they're but affordable it, if you want the release cuz he's been very adamant on that of like not jacking and, up the prices yeah, just because them, he can get them now because in yeah. 25 years those bottles are going to be worth a tremendous amount yeah. of money i mean don't don't get them and flip them now no <laughs> <laughs> but still them, let, let us have some you know <laughs> cuz we have certainly well i mean you know i say that jokingly but we've seen that already we see people speculating on on, on, on bottles of rum uh, oh, yeah. coming out of foursquare where well, just like you whiskey. Know, it's yeah. hard to get, you know, and the stuff was made to drink. You know, we want to taste it. We want to taste what Richard's got going on and, yep. you know, buy one and buy another one to set back, you know. But, <laughs> but that, that balance that you're talking about or, or the thing that makes a Barbadian rum a Barbadian rum, of course, is the tradition of Barbados, right? And so the tradition of Barbados is no additives. 
right? You make it in Barbados. You don't m monkey around with anything else. You're using, you know, you're using local molasses or molasses from the region. You're you're fermenting there. You're, you're distilling there. You're aging there. You're blending with Barbadian water. That's what makes a Barbados rum. And the GI, the geographic indication, is is something that they're working on now within the law the laws of Barbados and the nation of Barbados to get that passed. Right. And I had I've been invited down to meet with the Prime Minister of Barbados, Richard Seal, and all the other producers on the island to talk about that subject. And it's really fascinating that that you know you can have sort of one or two outside influences trying mm -hmm. to change things just to get a make more money, make it quicker, things mm -hmm. like that. They don't really care about the traditions and the history. Well, and we hear so, a lot that, you know, rum has no rules, and it, it's infuriating to bullshit. me. It yeah, is, right. It just has millions of sets of rules. Yeah. And so uh, just because they're adhering to one set doesn't mean they, you know, well, uh, match up with another. And, and, and so that's where we can, you, you a lot of confusion. You can't blame people for that. You can't right. blame people for that because people have been trained to think that rum is rum. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because you've had some really big companies for a very long time spending huge amounts of money right. selling you on nothing to do with the progeny, the history, or the traditions, or the techniques of rum making. They just sell you on beaches, and palm trees, and cannonballs, and <laughs> right, pirates. Right, I was say, and pirates standing and, on barrels. And, and <laughs> most importantly, on three terms, light, gold, and dark. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever no heard sense. of a dark cognac? How about a light uh, bourbon? You ever heard of a gold whiskey, mm -hmm. right? Nobody else talks about spirits this way except for the people who don't want to talk about how their rum is made. So they talk about it as light, gold, and dark, and look at that palm tree and watch out for that pirate, you know, and they don't want you to think about, oh, this is just neutral spirit. It's just industrial alcohol, and we throw some food coloring in it, and we dump a tremendous amount of sugar in it, and that's what you think rum is because that's the majority of the rum that gets made today. So I use the analogy, like, imagine if... Every whiskey drinker in the world had never tried whiskey, traditional whiskey. They'd only tried flavored moonshine. They get moonshine with cranberry apple spice added to it and mm -hmm. sugar and things like that. And people for decades are going, oh, is the banana strawberry whiskey better than the apple cranberry whiskey? And then someone walks up to you and goes, no, 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 that's not whiskey. Try this Macallan 25-year-old. Take a sip of that. And people go, oh, my God, I had no idea whiskey could taste like that. I hear that line every single day when yeah. people taste my rum. They go, I had no idea rum could taste like that. Well, it's like, wait a minute. This is rum. That other stuff is just flavored moonshine. Right, right. Particularly in the United States, you know, with those yeah. marketing dollars. And you see, and uh, obviously England as well, but my experience is here in the U.S. And yeah, there's so much marketing dollars. And every time I go to like a big box store or a supermarket, I always look at the rum aisle just to see, you know, <laughs> just, just to see what's there. And what's, <clears throat> excuse me, what's ironic is that the best bottle on that top shelf is cheaper than all the rest, right? Like it's it's usually Appleton. It's Appleton's signature and it's on that top shelf, but you know, their signature is like they're kind of entry level rum. And um, but it's it's up there with like, you know, all the heavily sugared Yeah, the you know, super yeah. like it's so dark, yeah. it's black, you know, because so much yeah. caramel's been added in and, and yeah. you know, we've talked about this on the show. Actually you kind of more or less gave us an index of the guests of past guests uh we've had almost everybody on there we haven't had joy on the show yet um but so we've talked you know now about what the but, real well, mccoy me, tastes like now let me just clarify one yeah, thing yeah. though but one thing to keep in mind is just because somebody's using like a big still like a multi-column still sure. doesn't mean they're making a bad product doesn't right. mean that they're lying to you about it and people always like when i when i talk about this 
you know, people always go, well, wait a minute, what about this one? What about that one? Of course, there's exceptions to every single thing we're talking about, every one of these details. But the reality is you have some people out there using big devices, making large right. volumes and doing it really, really well, like our friend Roberto Sorales at Don Q. Yes, absolutely. Fantastic rums. He's got a big, big factory, but man, they make some great stuff. Well, and, I think that that's and Joy big, at Appleton, um, they're big, but they make amazing products. The confusion, and I think it's definitely, as people start to learn about distillation, it's that um, that column still. We hear column still, and we associate that with, you know, this neutral grain spirit or neutral cane spirit in the case of rum, and we associate that with like kind of flavorless and boring product. But you know, that is not necessarily, you know, the column still is very different than a multi-column still. Yeah. And so what's creating, you know, uh, what what is used in? Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember Richard's exact words in the. Uh, Last interview we did with him, he, he said, you know, like distillation is not about purification, it's about separation. It you is. Know? It's right, separating you know. heavy, uh, volatile compounds. Right, right. And so so the column still is an interesting device because, you know, it, it the still, the history of the still is, you know, the alambic pot still, the classic pot still goes back thousands of years. But you end up in, in the in the sort of like middle middle 1700s to late 1700s coming in with the Creole still, which is mm -hmm. the single column still. And let's say there's about 30 plates in that column still. And so it's just a tower. Instead of a, a cauldron with a swan neck on top, you mm -hmm. know, and like an alambic, it's, a, it's just a straight tower. And in there, there's about 30 plates. And in each plate is filled with water. And so the alcohol vapor is boiled at the bottom and has to rise up through all these plates. And as it rises through the plates, a little bit of the congeners, the flavor compounds that are developed during fermentation are stripped out into the water. Right. Just like if you're taking right. a, ba a bag of, of tea and you dunk it in a cup of water, you've now infused into that cup of water, just dunk it one time, that's like the alcohol vapor going through one plate. So if you take that one bag of tea and you dump it in 30 cups of water, by the time you get to the last cup, the, the flavor profile is not going to be non-existent, but it's not going to be massively huge. Right. It's going to be kind of light. So when you go to the twin column coffee still, like what Richard Seal has one of those and a pot still, um, now you've got about 60 plates in there. And so you're getting a, a very light rum out of that. So the flavor compounds are there. You can smell it. It smells like rum. It tastes like rum. There's no additives to it, but it's a very light flavor profile rum, which he then blends with his pot still, right. which is a very heavy flavor profile rum because it's very inefficient at extracting mm -hmm. that alcohol. And so that's how you get the balance in Barbados is between those two different types of stills. That's why Barbadian rums are, are so renowned for their balance because they right. use the two stills. But then it, by the 1930s, they came out with the big multi-column still, which is what they use to, to separate um, uh, fuel, like right. home heating exactly. fuel and gasoline. And that's what we're looking at, purification. And that's where I think the semantics kick into that, mm -hmm. where we hear the word pure and think that that's automatically a, a beneficial thing or a good thing. And whereas like they purifying pure, they alcohol. They should say separated. Exactly. Right. Because purification, you know, just because you've got pure alcohol doesn't mean it's delicious alcohol. No, it's If you start with sugarcane, you want it to taste like sugarcane right. or at least somewhat remission of the, of the product that you started with. And if you've stripped away everything, I mean, it doesn't matter what you're initial wine was you know it could have if been you strip it all away and there's no congeners left and you can't tell what what was its original starting point you know it, it doesn't have the onoleptics that, that you would want from something so right the, you know the whole point of making the multi-column still was to separate fuel oil gasoline they use the same device to separate uh, uh, rum basically so if you're if you have a a, a, a fuel alcohol plant 
then that still is not made with copper. It's made with stainless steel or, or iron. Sure. And, you know, so they don't care about the, the, the importance of copper if it's going in your gas tank. But if it's going into your body, they want it, you know, because it's it, the, the alcohol comes out with so much acid um, and so much sulfur compounds that you want to have the alcohol vapor interact with the copper in the still. Mm. And that neutralizes those compounds. So you can make a multi-column still out of copper on the interior. And now you'll have a beverage alcohol multi-column still like you'll find it at Don Q and places like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so those can be, you know, with 100 plates, they can get very neutral. Um, you can you can push it all the way to the point of 63% alcohol, 65% alcohol, and you know there's very little flavor compounds left at that stage, and that's the difference that people don't understand. There's several different types of, of column stills, right? And the, the fewer the columns, the more congeners, the more flavor, you know. So the the the, the larger number of columns, the less flavor. That's the way to think about it. So now we understand, you know, what to expect from the real McCoy that's produced in Barbados, but how about the lab? So, you know, we talked about the importance of rum in the American uh, Revolution and, and that era. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is a really big kind of pennant that you're going to be flying. I mean, this is New England rum. Yeah, I mean, New you're going to be planting the yep. flag right there yep. in the midst of where it all began in the U.S. anyhow. Yep. Um, so, I mean, what is a New England-style rum? We, we've had, you know, Maggie Campbell... Uh, from mm-hmm. privateer kind of leading the charge a little bit on New England style rum, mm-hmm. but we really haven't seen that largely outside of her work. And she's now left and kind of in, in flux and right. isn't working for anyone at the moment. Uh, right. But you know, so what, what is, what is New England style rum? Well, what I'm doing, I'm, I'm basing mine on research that I've done about how rum production was done at certain periods in time. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to be getting molasses from Barbados and probably also from Guyana, which have similar types of, of, uh, of sugar cane that, that are being harvested in those two nations. We'll bring them up to the United States, bring them to, to New England, and in Connecticut, where I'm set up in Mystic, Connecticut, we're going to bring them to the lab and do open-top fermentations. So that's, that's going to allow awesome. natural yeast from New England, not an, an orchestrated yeast or you know a, a designed yeast. And we'll also have the bacteria that naturally exists there, and we're going to just experiment right? and let it do its fermentations. And we're going to go for short fermentations. We're going to go for extremely long fermentations. We're going to go for secondary fermentations where you're basically in larger holding tanks after it's mm. the, the actual fermentation is completed, but then you let it rest, mm. and there's attributes that can develop there as long as you're very careful with that with those steps. And then from there, we're going to distill in our um, our our, uh, uh, our pot still our our, our you know, alambic pot still that we have with the two retorts. So we were talking a little bit before the show. Um, you said you're talking about you know very slow fermentation, and that when you know we go through a slow fermentation, we get lots of. Uh, kind of long chain uh, acids building up and all these sorts of things that bring us the congeners and the funkiness. But uh, you were talking about slow distillation, kind of slowing down the distillation, which yeah. um, I, I I just hear Richard coming out of your mouth. But, you know... <laughs> well, I, I mean, learned th- from him. Right. Um, these are like, you know, that was something that I hadn't really... We don't hear talked about very often as we, we often hear, you know, the rum geeks particularly talking about these you know, really long fermentations in Jamaica and, you know, all this funkiness that comes out of that. But, you know, the distillation part of it is incredibly important and we often overlook that. Um, you know, so explain to me what you meant by a, kind of a slow distillation. Well, it comes from Richard, obviously, and, you know, he always says slow distillation. <laughs> right. Or you end up with rubbish. <laughs> and so the, <laughs> the idea is... Um, you, you fill the pot, you know, the chamber in the, in, in the, in the still, and now you're going to bring this to a, eventually to a rolling boil. But before you get to a rolling boil at 212 degrees Fahrenheit, um, the alcohol vapor, the most volatile components, which are the things you're trying to separate, 
are going to start to rise out long before you get to a rolling boil. Right. And so when you get to about 176 degrees, you're going to start to get your your uh, your methanols. So mm -hmm. here's your methyl alcohols are going to start to come up. And these vapors are going to go up into the still, and they're going to pass through the still, and you're going to capture them. And those are called the heads. Mm -hmm. And then at about a, a little over 178 and up to about 212 degrees, now your hearts are rising up. This is your ethanol. This is your good drinking alcohol. So you separate that, put that into a different chamber. You capture that into a different pot. And then after you get over 212 degrees, there's still some good alcohol in there. But now whatever's in your water supply is, is being vaporized and being released into in mixed in with your uh, with your alcohol vapor. So you're getting whatever's in your water supply. You might have magnesium and copper and all sorts of things that are coming from your your water, and that stuff's going to end up. And we call that the tails. And so you separate those three. Now, if you're going to make really good hearts, the slower you can make that happen, the better, because when the alcohol is in vapor form and it's moving through the still, if it goes rocketing through the still, it never gets the advantage of having a copper still. And that advantage is that the copper interacts with the alcohol vapor to turn acids into bases and to neutralize sulfur compounds primarily. So that if you can slow the process down, because it wants to follow entropy, it's going to go as fast as it can through the still. Mm -hmm. You want to find ways of slowing it down so the vapor stays in there and vortexes and spins around inside the, the still and slams into the copper walls of the still. The longer it does that, the more neutralization happens of sulfur compounds and acid compounds. And so you get a much smoother product. And that's part of the magic of what you find with the Foursquare rums. And all the traditional rum makers who are using pot stills who do it slowly and know how to do this and are really not, they're, they're not trying to just make as much alcohol as they can as fast as they can, in which case you just buy a multi-column still and right. you, can, you can make more, more rum in a day than I could make in a year. Mm -hmm. So that's the whole point. Your, your strategy, your business plan, everything has to be completely aligned with this device. And now you go really slowly and you end up with these wonderful compounds. So as the new distillery or lab uh, is kind of taking form uh, and you've got all these kind of projects in mind, do you have any idea what's going to come out on the other side? Because, you're, you know, we're talking about wild yeast and bacteria and all these things. I mean, yeah. have you experimented around a little bit in oh, the yeah. area? And yeah, so yeah. Do you, you've got an idea of kind of the, what's going to come out the other side? I have an idea, but I, don't, I won't know for sure because it's not just the distillation process. It's not just the fermentation process, but there's also going to be the blend and there's going to be the aging. Sure. And so different things are going to happen at every one of those stages. And many, many different decisions are going to be made. And what I'm doing now for the next year to two years is really just going to be lots of experimentation with a lot of different variables. Do I want to go with a you know, 100% open, uncontrolled yeast and bacteria? Right. Or do I want to do a combination of some controlled yeast and allow some of the, the, the natural bacteria in? I'll experiment with both of those. Either one of those, whatever the scenario is for my yeast, how long do I go has a big, a big impact on that. So I've designed a system where I can drop um, cooling coils into each of the washbacks, into the, each of the wooden tanks to cool it down because, you know, there's a, there's a, a thermal heat process that comes from fermentation. So mm -hmm, essentially, sure. as, the th as the fermentation starts getting going and going and going, it heats up and eventually it'll kill itself. Right. All the bacteria will die because the whole solution will get too warm. So if you can cool them down a little bit, allows them to go longer, mm. depending on the time of year and what yeah, conditions yeah, yeah. are outside. So we're going to be playing with different experiments like that. Then we get to distillation. Of course, we're going to play with times in our still so we can get the right separation. Remember, your still doesn't do anything to add flavor. There's no, that's all mythology. That's all stills do is separate volatile compounds. 
So if you do a really good job of very tightly separating those compounds and not allowing some elements to bleed over, you end up with a really beautiful spirit. Now you then go into your barrel aging, the type of barrels, the level of char, the conditions right. that they're being stored in, um, the type of wood you're going to use. All of those are variables, and there's dozens of things that we can do with each one of those decisions. So that's what we're going to be playing around with to come up with different ideas and to see how does our local bacteria and our local yeast and our, and our Barbadian molasses hold up under all these mm -hmm. variables so that we start to pick a lane. And eventually right. we'll say, great, I'm, I'm getting my best results in this direction, mm -hmm. and eventually I'll get there. What I'm not doing, I'm not just saying, hey, I'm going to buy this yeast from this guy, right. and I'll buy this molasses from that guy, and I'm going to throw it all together and turn this machine on and sell it to you. Right. That's not at all what we're doing. We're going to spend a long time perfecting this process, and then we're going to have really beautiful products. Well, like I said, you've been lucky in the fact that you've been able to learn from the best. Uh, I assume you're going to be laying down some of this product for aging. Oh, absolutely. Um, Everything so right off the aged. bat. Yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, this is an area of the country that, again, we've, we've kind of forgotten what New England rum is like. I mean, do you have examples of kind of aged New England rums uh, that you, you're kind of leaning towards as far as like you know there's not really a lot out there right i mean no, you're, you're, you're going from history document like documentation uh, of previous methods or yeah and and you know <clears throat> honestly there were without tasting it's just it's so tough but just I, like i'm hard in, trying to wrap my head around just it. like in any environment though you're going to have people who were um very adept at making things because right. they had training and technique sure, and sure. traditions and they knew what they were doing and then you have other people that were just like blowing it out their nose like mm -hmm. oh, i don't know i just made this drink it you know and and so you would have had all of those things in new england just like you would have had those things mm -hmm. in, in the early years in barbados or jamaica or anywhere else so part of the adventure of this is that i'm not trying to commoditize it i'm really trying to enjoy the experimentation process. Let this the terroir kind it, of like tell you what it tell is. Tell us what it is and not try to say, I want it to be like that person's That's product awesome. or I want it to be like that style from some other country. I want it, this to be entirely New England, which will be great. I mean, that's the perfect way to do it, rather than base it on something that was from New England, base it on something that is from New England. Exactly. And, and bringing in the yeast and all of that. So um, where does all of this leave your uh, like your film career? I mean, we circling back to the beginning, you know, we, we talked about... Straight to porn. Right to porn. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very interested in filmmaking, and I, and I always have been. And it was kind of funny, as I mentioned earlier, I, I was kind of getting a little burned out on the on writing because I've done so many films back to back over those right. over those years. Mm -hmm. And so I needed a break and this was the <laughs> We're all burned out, yeah, really. <laughs> yeah. But I needed a real break and it, and it was really really lovely to take some time off. I was at the height of my career and you know, I've got 7 Emmy awards now. I've got 17 Emmy nominations in my career. So I'm in a great place to kind of like restart that yeah. when I'm ready. Yeah. And so um, I will definitely get back into writing more in the future. I've just got so much going on with my sure. rum distillery and, and the Real McCoy brand that I'm really enjoying this and having a great time. But I'm a big believer in wanting to do one thing really well and not try to do two or three things yeah. poorly. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm focusing on. But I have a bunch of great ideas for movies, and I can't wait to get into that <laughs> right. at some point. I mean, it's been your whole career, and, and I'm, you know, every time I talk to you, I always think of like all the, just the amazing things that are happening in your life that I would love to see documented. You know, all these opportunities that you've had to like sit and and chill with master distillers and blenders and travel around Martinique and 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 Scotland and just all these things that the normal folk like us, you know, we we just have to talk to you and yeah. and live vicariously. Yes, um, yes. But you know, it's it's really an exciting second start. You know, at at, at fifty years old to be able to like <laughs> kind of switch gears like that. 
um, completely amazing, and your wife's an amazing person to like, Jennifer, to, yes. yeah, yes, to like is. support this whole like gear shift, uh-huh. um, you know, yeah. and, and I think courage. it's 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 a it's a time for refreshing all of our careers, you know, uh, you know, as sure. COVID has brought the reality of hospitality kind of into focus and where the failings there thereof, um, sure, within that, and you know, I I just we've believed in Real McCoy uh, since the first time we tried it, uh, we've. I mean, I don't know. We must have been one of the earliest accounts I think that you, you had were, because yeah. we've known Very you for a long time yeah, and the brand's not that old, you yeah, know. Yeah. But but you know, I mean, like I said before, the the whole idea is if we're all sitting here today with this post, you know, 2020 COVID year where we all did a lot of soul searching, there was a lot of introspection going on. I mean, yeah. as a nation, as a, as individuals, as businesses, our individual businesses, you know, like your your bar here. You know, it, it, we we really have to look at what's the most important thing for all of us because it mm. could be over tomorrow, right. right? Yeah. And when they when you really actually come close to that reality, you realize, wow, am I doing the thing I really want to do with my life? How am I contributing? What is it? What is the meaning of all of this? And to me, you know, finding those things that get you excited, that make you happy, and allow you to be looking forward to the next day—that is the spice of life. And you know, do what you love, and the rum will follow. I don't think there's a better way to exit the show than that. And I'm like, I, I'm not going to screw that up with some quote from my uh, from myself. Uh, Bailey, thanks so much for coming on the show. Sure thing. This has been Thank awesome. You. I can't wait to have you back on again. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to talk about the rum you just released from New England. Um, where yes. can people find you online to follow your like you know uh, adventure and all of the uh, all of the new stuff, all the old stuff. It's all going to be on. It's all going to be on our real McCoy stuff. So at the real McCoy rum and and our website realmccoyrum.com. And so, um, that we're which is also where you can find the documentary about Bob McCoy as well. Yes, you can watch it for free there. And I've got many other films there. I've got small short films that I've done on some of our products, but also like little videos on fermentation, distillation, maturation, blending. Super. Um, I've shot f- things with other people that I'm going to start putting on the site as well that talk more about other cultures and other environments. So um, I hope to add more to that later. So doing little things like that will be lots of fun. But if you can follow us there, you'll learn all about what's going on with the lab. And eventually we'll come up with a brand. And eventually you'll be <laughs> no, you it. It's going to be forever called the lab now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But at least, uh, at least you'll know when you, when you get to try it, it's going to be something really special. Well, I personally can't wait. I'm gl- so glad that I crossed paths with you a, a decade ago and, and that we're able to sit here again. You know, We're lucky enough to be able to still be around yeah. here 10 years later yeah, and, and still drinking. Our, our socially distant... Uh, interview right here yes. and we have all of this <laughs> all of this due to bill mccoy just one more right. one more page in the chapter right. of, and, and the uh the history and legacy of bill mccoy yes. uh, bailey again thanks for coming on the show thank you uh, appreciate it we're going to see you soon cheers cheers